Six for two. 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 Join us on Agents of Cool as we return to the village just in time for free and fair elections on The Prisoner. Agents of Cool. I am Eric, your grumpy number six, joined as always by Ray and Stacy. Uh, and today we return to the village, the world of the prisoner, as we discuss the episode Free for All. Now, which episode number is it, dear listeners? Well, um, apparently there are some differences in production order and broadcast order. And, and streaming the order. Proper viewing order. And disc order. <laughs> um, so I'm working off the DVD box set, which has Free For All as its second episode. Um, but uh, don't worry, uh, we'll eventually get to all of them, assuming um, yeah, assuming we all survive. So, um, did we. Now, we, I, I should have gone back and listened to this before we did the podcast. Right. Did we do Arrival and Chimes of Big Ben for our, fir- our first prisoner look at, or just Arrival? Just did arrival. Okay. Oh. Okay. Why do I watch James and Big Ben? Because Leo McKern is best number two and left leaves a huge impression. So, which is when you think of number two, most of the time you think of, at least I do, I think of Leo McKern. <laughs> except until watching it, I had not watched The Prisoner except for the last episode. So. Well, he's also the number two for that one. So that. Right. I'm just saying. I'm pretty sure I've actually watched the Times of Big Ben. Did we watch it and then not review it, or? Maybe or we just may, we might just watch it just for the heck of it at some point. Because, because we are allowed to watch television, we do not in fact talk about it on the internet. That's fair. I mean, you're married to me, so there's a chance we watch it sometime at some point. That's fair. Maybe we thought we were going to do more contiguous prisoner, and then decided not to. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, I'm trying. Oh. To, I'm trying to remember what the plan was, but that was a long time ago. Is too depressing. We're going to do something that's not the prisoner. Yeah, I think because basically, yeah, we we had to deal with a large bouncing ball named not Rover but Corona, and uh, yeah. Basically, we had a ginormous global pandemic, and it like screwed up everything for everybody everywhere. So um, yeah, so I mean, but it's okay. We're, we're, it's not like we're trapped in our home because of the large bouncing spiky ball named Corona. Wait, hold it. You know, maybe the prisoner is more relevant than we think. Well, um, oh, never stop being relevant, kids. That, I was going to leave that particular interpretation in the eye of the beholder. Uh, wait, hold it, hold it back up. That's no, that's a different ball with floaty, floaty ball with that only has eye stalks. So it will definitely be seeing you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For many, yeah, pretty much. They have three sixty vision, don't they? I would assume. Yeah, that would. Rovers. Well, probably, but I mean, beholders definitely. Well, yeah. Is this the? Episode, or did they show this in the first episode as well, like how rovers are generated? I think the little bubble effect is in the first one. The little, yeah. the little I guess I'm assuming it's a lava lamp, but I'm not sure how they... Like they butt off of some kind of bigger underwater thing. blob. And, yeah. yeah. I assume they use, I assume that they use the rover, the same uh, sort of stock rover generation footage. Right. The same way, more or less the same way they use the same footage of Voltron assembling in every episode of Voltron. All right, so uh, free for all, and I, I guess the I guess the thing is that there's a certain stack of of these episodes where, how should I phrase this? It's not that they hit the reset button exactly. It's that they punch you in the groin at the end of the episode. Yeah, it's, it, exactly. It's more like you get punched in the junk at the end of the episode. Um, we're watching this second. Uh, there's production order. There's broadcast order. There's streaming order. There's order on the DVDs. But uh, for sake of discussion, we can split those very fine hairs, but I don't think it's going to affect our discussion of individual episodes all that much. So this will be our second Prisoner episode, and it's our intention, while we still suck air, to work our way through all of them. So, uh, and free I for can, all. And I can, well, yeah, I can kind of see, well, you know, I can definitely see why this would work as, you know, works as the second episode, but... It's, it's obviously early in number six's stay in the village. 
uh, so we open with um, we open with that slam bang iconic opening, mm-hmm. rumble of thunder, sports car, like um, like Magoon doing that like thousand yard death stare that he does. Um, terrific opening sequence. Yeah, uh, so we we, uh, we and after that we roll into the bungalow, right? His little uh, his his cabin, his bungalow, uh, his little house in the village. Uh, the phone rings. Number six picks it up. He says, "What do you want?" Uh, <laughs> which I have to admit, which I have to admit made me laugh. Not hello or greetings or hi. What do you want? Um, a number six, our little ray of sunshine. Mm-hmm. And it's um, and it's number two when he's calling. He'd, he'd like to have a conversation with six. And two says something to the effect that this time the mountain will have to come to Mohammed. And then he hangs up. Moments later, door opens, and there's uh, and there's number two. Number two comes in. He is joined by number fifty-eight. Number fifty-eight is a, is a, is a woman. Uh, she is wearing a sort of maid or servant's uniform, and she's like uh, serving them breakfast, right? She does number not two, speak English. Does not speak English. Uh, number two says that she doesn't speak English, but that she came to them uh, from uh, with lots of. Came to them with a photographic memory from records, I believe. Records mm-hmm. for information. So we're introduced to, and, and she's she's very enthusiastic. She's, uh, I, I would say, almost servile. She's trying to, you know, get their um, really almost obsequious in a way. Let's see. Um, the TV, I believe, the TV says like um, they're having breakfast, they're having their conversation. Uh, congratulations on another day. Congratulations on a good day, or congratulations, mm-hmm. just congratulations on another day. Period, which, mm-hmm. uh, which, uh, uh, frankly, real life is starting to feel like. You wake up in the morning, congratulations on another day, uh, much the same as the one before it and the one before that. Not that the pandemic's wearing me down, kids. Um, anyway, two uh, two says that uh, they're getting ready to have elections on the village, right? Uh, as I recall, number six is fairly, um, it's that blend of indifference and furious rage. Like um, He's got a great lungs. They have food brought in. I mean, on, on play, like number 58 keeps you know, bringing in like, I, you know, I don't know if that's an English breakfast or what there, but, you know, toast, marmalade, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, number two asks him, do you intend to, some of the effect of, do you intend to run? And he says, like Blaze is the first chance I get. Yes, they're having elections in the village. You can even run to be number two. And if you run to be number two and win, then you'll be in charge. You'll be number two. And you get to meet number one. You'll have access to number one, all the secrets to what's going on. Two uh, takes six out to um, a crowd. There's a crowd of people gathered to hear a speech. Uh, Number two... uh, introduces number six to the crowd as the uh, exceedingly militant and individualistic number six. Uh, therefore, reminding me of why I like number six so much. Uh, <laughs> and, and, he, and he sort of like puts the microphone to his mouth and he's like, okay, y'all want me to run? I'll run. And his speech, uh, I think uh, he has a line in there, I will discover who are the prisoners and who are the warders. Because looking around, some of these people have chosen to be there, and some of these people have been kidnapped or abducted to be there based on what they know. So six is like, all right, you want me to run? I'm going to run. Well, also some of them have, you know, some of them, fought, you know, fell into the latter category and decided to move into the former category. Yeah. Um, so number six is assigned uh, one of the little village. I don't want to say golf carts because they're not exactly golf carts, but I'm going to call them golf carts. He's assigned to one of the little village golf carts, and there's like a five-foot-tall poster on this golf cart already of his mm-hmm. file of his file photo um, with vote number six on it. Mm-hmm. He's assigned number fifty-eight, assigned number fifty-eight as his driver, and she's like super, still super enthusiastic and whatnot. Um, now they drive her. Now they, they t- she she they take off uh, through the village. And they encounter, uh, check me on the numbers here, number 113 and number 113B. Mm-hmm. Who are, are photographers. 
a news reporter and a the photographer assigned to them from the village newspaper, the Tully Ho. They proceed to ask Six a number of questions about policy, to which Six regularly answers no comment, and to which they supply their own answers anyway. Mm -hmm. Except for the one that he says something slightly different, to which they write down no comment. No comment. Yeah, and it should be, you know, these are these are basically stock, you know, what is your external policy? Well, no comment. Okay, our exports will be available throughout the world. Um, you know, so it's, I, yeah, it's pretty much, pretty much stock political pablum. And of course, just like his picture was available as soon as he decided to run, the newspaper is individually printed off with this article in it moments later. At this point, almost as if the press has a template for how they'd like this horse race to work out, kids. So, uh, six goes to uh, the council meeting as a rover looks on, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of making sure he goes into the building and doesn't try to go anywhere else. He goes into the council meeting. Uh, number two is at the center of the council. The council itself, I'm not 100% sure that those are even live actors. Mm -hmm. Because the case six refers to them as um, mannequins, as dummies, and we don't get a really close look at any of them. Six uh, attempts to question the council. He rages at them. Then number two says the rules demand that number six undergo a test. Mm -hmm. At which point the dais number six is on spins around. We get like a, a surreal 60s sound and electronic light show. You know, uh, lights, red lights, electronic beeping noises, surreality, disorientation. Right. At which point... Um, Oh no! Six. Don't forget the gaveling. Oh so right, the guys. Yeah, so it goes from you know just gaveling him, you know, basically undergo the test, you know, bangs the gavel. But as the you know as the platform descends and there's this weird light effect, which you know, you maybe you know maybe has paralyzed number six. It's not entirely clear. Uh, you know, it cuts to you know him just hammering the gavel into the little whatever you hammer a gavel on over and over like you're hammering down a nail. You know, as you know that as number six descends into the floor, which you know, ah, like a proud nail that stands up to you. Yeah, just bam, 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 and I mean, I, I'm surprised the gavel. You know, I wonder how many takes they had to do before. You know, because the gavel broke, because he is giving it his all. <laughs> and then um, six ends up in this like tunnel filled with bus straps that he has to hold himself up on because he's dizzy. He ends up on a lower level, right? Where he is met by a kind gentleman in a suit, uh -huh. who offers him tea. You see, but he already knows how Six wants his tea. Uh -huh. He's given up sugar for medical reasons years ago. Uh -huh. And this is an introduction to the fact that they already know everything about. Him. And we, we cut back to number two for a minute. Number two is asking where they got this uh, person that Six is now talking to. And uh, one of his lackeys say they got him from the civil service and that he adapted almost immediately. <laughs> yes. Which uh, uh, cracks me up. Um, now, number two, shortly after that, is on a phone. And he's warned by somebody mm -hmm. that they need to be careful with number six. Mm -hmm. um, at which point, number two contacts man downstairs and warns him to use first stage only. So while uh, Six is down there with this guy, he is subjected to um, some kind of brainwashing that simply turns him into a um, another happy candidate. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of, let, let, let's politely say takes the edge off Six a little bit. Mm -hmm. After this, he goes out, uh, turns him into another happy candidate. He goes in front of goes in front of the village and he gives like a very rah-rah sort of campaign speech. You know, my, my priority is taking care of the people, taking care of your security. Uh, a, a fairly standard kind of uh, campaign speech that is, shall we say, generously out of character with number six. Um, now he goes back to his bungalow. That's a conversation with uh, uh, number 58. Um, he figures out how, have a conversation with number 58. He figures out how to say He's seeing you to her in her native language, mm -hmm. at which point um, he seems to snap. 
like has some kind of break. Um, he, he tears off through the village. Um, he steals a speedboat, two people on it. And like we said, and like Ray said earlier, he runs like blazes, takes off the speedboat. Uh, there's a fist fight with a couple of guys that were on the speedboat as they're tearing across the waves. Number two pursues in a helicopter, uh, issuing warnings from the helicopter. And then they, uh, and then a rover, and then a rover arrives and uh, captures number six. Yeah. And crucially, he's he, issuing warnings both to number six and to the guys beating the heck out of number six because they don't. He doesn't want them. To, they don't want him to like damage him. You know. Right. They, they, they and, and remember, and remember, he is actually beating the crap out of them too. There's a, mm -hmm. and it and it feels a little bit. It feels, if I'm being honest, it feels a little bit like a perfunctory fist fight. Like we got to throw in a fist fight there, here for the. Uh, for there's the a lot of flailing involved because he's trying to drive a boat at the same time. So he kind of vaguely flails one arm, and one guy goes flying. And... Which, which is not to say that it is ever not fun to see number six in a fist fight. Uh, because I am here. Let's be honest here. I am here for the intellectual content, and I am here for the fist fights. You know, let's not let's not uh, let me not be disingenuous about that. Um, so uh, a rover shows up. Six is captured again. Uh, he he. They take him to the hospital, where he was being given a uh, a refresher on the brainwashing. And he goes out there, and and after he gets out of the hospital, uh, he gives a speech to uh, a, a really excited, happy crowd. And he gives this, and he gives what sounds like a very unsix-like speech, which is, uh, if you give us the information, which boils down to you give us the information we want, and we'll move you up in the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll have um, more luxuries. You'll have more chances to do things. You'll, yeah, which is not a very, which is not a six-like speech at all. And then we cut to number two, who is also giving a speech mm -hmm. to a smaller, much more subdued crowd. He's basically saying about number six, yeah, he's promising all these things, but can he really deliver? Does he have the administrative and bureaucratic experience to deliver on the policies he's suggesting? And then, uh, and then number six uh, shows up in his golf cart, uh, followed by that same uh, cheering crowd, and disrupts disrupts number two's speech again. A little, a little while later, he's having a drink in the village bar. The barmaid offers him whiskey, gin, vodka, but none of them's real, right? Right. Uh, so I guess this is the precursor to the scent hill they serve on the Enterprise, uh, Enterprise D. Um, and he's like, uh, it's whiskey, gin, vodka, whiskey, gin, vodka, except none of it's real. And he, uh, um, he yells, out. yells, freaks out, freaks out again. Tells 58 to get him a real drink. And then, and then he dr drives out into the darkness, accuses 58 of spying on him. And eventually uh, sort of runs off into the village night where he finds, finds like a cave. Mm -hmm. uh, so he gets to what Stacy calls the secret drinking cave, which I really, which I really should have put on a t-shirt, secret drinking cave. Um, that's, <laughs> that's what we should do. We should find the prisoner font, uh, <laughs> make a t-shirt that says, and, and go to like, a, I like t-shirts plus or something and have like print on demand t-shirts that say secret drinking cave. So he finds uh, the secret drinking cave where we have like an actual, what looks like some kind of really complicated still. And somebody tending it, and number two, drinking. And number two promises him that this cave is, um, uh, that this is, uh, he calls it the, the therapy zone. That this is a place you can come to drink and let it off your chest and talk without surveillance, right? Um, now, of course, that's a, of course, that's a lie. Because uh, Six uh, drinks, and then we find out that um, he's been drugged, and we find out that there's enough drugs in uh, in what he is drunk to keep him under control through the election. Mm -hmm. Well, also the guy who run running the still in the secret drinking cave is apparently a scientist. They let him do this as a hobby, and then he does equations on a blackboard in the back room at other times, and they take photographs of it. So this is how they get information out of him. Right. Well, this okay. is you know, yeah. This is allegedly all given in confidence, but you know, number two to yeah. number six, who's you know very congenial, just generally, it, you know, it, it it kind of reminds you of the way you you know, I think of what you know, way politicians probably commiserate even amongst parties, you know, because uh, about just the general travails and such of just having to deal with this, that, or the other thing, or having to deal with the press or whatnot. So, you know, so number two is very congenial and very you know just very congenial and generally you know just. Ex seemingly just exasperated with the whole rat race 
himself, or allegedly. So he's like, ah, look here, here behind the curtain. See, we, you know, this is a hobby for this guy, and he he fills in the equations and does the chemical formulas, and we come in about once a week and photograph it and erase it, and he starts all over again. It's great. That's how we get the information out of him. So it's like your little your little inside here here's here, here's some of the stuff we do, uh, kind of thing. And but, then uh, and then number six falls over because uh, he's been drugged. Right. It's clear that the scientist slash brewer is in on it and made sure to brew up just exactly the right concoction. To last through the end of the election, I believe, or words to that effect. Uh, Said election. Said election with, um, which of course, six wins. A landslide, right? Uh, So number two hands over his badge uh, and conspicuously hands over the number two scarf. Which, I, which uh, for some reason also cracks me up. Hands over his badge and his scarf, and uh, number six is now number two. So six and fifty-eight uh, enter the control room, and fifty-eight gleefully starts hitting buttons and throwing switches and acting a little bit. Still doesn't speak English. Acting mm-hmm. a little bit like a kid in a playground. Mm-hmm. Having a ball. Yeah, or an unsupervised 10-year-old in a candy store. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that we know anything about that, right, Stacy? No, not at all. Uh, not at all. Uh, <laughs> I never bought an interest amount of candy for your child. Never. That never happened. No, that never happened. That never happened. Uh, in y'all's defense, you were left uh, unsupervised. Um, so she throws all these switches, all these buttons. Number six is mesmerized. All the flashing lights on the monitor screens and whatnot. Um, she uh, starts uh, smacking him really hard around the face. Bam! While saying the phrase, tick, tick, smack, tick, tick, smack, tick, tick. And I guess this is the scene for everybody that just wanted to smack Patrick McGowan around. I don't I, know. Are there people? Are there such people? Probably. I mean, I, um, Patrick McGowan probably I mean, wrote the script, so I why this goes on for, and I mean, it goes on for. This isn't. I mean, it goes on for a point where I am now actively uncomfortable and not sure what the hell is going on here. Smack, tick, tick. What this seems to be doing is snapping him out of his conditioning. Um, he's back to himself. He's the real quote unquote number six now. So he starts grabbing the phones in the control center, announcing to the people, look, I'm in charge now. I'm turning everything off. You're free to go. Run. Go for it. Run. Obey me. You are free. Obey me. Yeah, obey me. You are free. Uh, which, conspicuously, no one in the village does. So um, he flees. Six flees to a cavern behind the control room. Are we getting the kind of... Uh, sitting around the rover. Get into some kind of weird ass territory here. Well, so we yeah. Well, actually, because we I, I think what happens is like, so you know, he's hitting the buttons. The buttons seem to do nothing other than raise the chairs and lower the mm-hmm. chairs, and the people in the village kind of go on about their business, ignoring his, you know, mm-hmm. him yelling into the phones all over the place. Um, and then two guys with a stretcher come in through one of the little doors, and then he um, at first just runs right past them. Right, and then goes into the cave where the guys in sunglasses watching a glowing rover are. Four guys in chairs and sunglasses and jumpsuits watching a glowing rover. Like, what the actual hell, Patrick? And a couple of guards come in and there's a fist fight. Six is basically beaten senseless. And Mm. apparently... really want hell out of it. Yeah, and I think it might be the two guys... The two guys with the stretcher might be the two guys from the boat. It's a little. Oh yeah, I think they are. Uh, and apparently, the beating for numbers there were there were two scenes that were cut for broadcast. Uh, I was reading, and one was an extended version of the nightclub scene where he like sings the apparently sings the vote for me song. Uh, that that they apparently wasn't restored for release. They may have lost the footage, but the, it was a much shorter beating in air. You know, it was aired because oh man, it hurts. Oh, it hurts. <laughs> it, this is not a pleasant beating to watch. Yeah. So six uh, goes back to the control room. You see that number 58 is now wearing the scarf and the badge of number two. She's been number two all along. Mm-hmm. She says to him in perfect English, when will you learn? Are you ready to talk? At which point, um, 
number six, who has been beaten, just beaten senseless, is taken on a gurney back to his little bungalow. And then we see number two on the phone saying, give my regards to the homeland. Yeah, to the two. old number two who is leaving in his helicopter. All right. So, uh, and then we what? get uh, somebody, Patrick McGowan, head, bar slam down, bang, and scene. So, so this episode, yeah. This episode was written by Patrick McGowan under the pen name Patty Fitz. Um, which uh, mm-hmm. is not the best pen name I've ever seen. That also cracks me up a little bit. Uh, written and directed by Patrick McGowan. This is not one of... So, you know, at the end of a mission episode, they get in the van, they drive away, the villain's life r- lies in ruins, and no one's the wiser. At the end of uh, Wild Wild West, probably Jim and Artie are on the train, like having a drink, trading uh, witty banter, and maybe there's a girl. Um, at the end of The Avengers, Steve and Peele trade a little witty banter, have a drink, go off to some soiree. Uh, but at the end of this, at the end of this, number six is on a gurney, taken back to his house. He's still a prisoner, disembodied head, whoosh bars, bam. So, um, so yeah, this is uh, not super uplifting. Um, this is not a super uplifting episode. Now, the funny thing here is that, um, and Ray and Stacy, I don't know if I've ever told you this or not, but mm-hmm. Ray, you came to me a few years ago thinking that we ought to do a podcast. And I initially couldn't think of something. I mean, what the hell are we going to do a podcast about? There's already so many shows about comics, and show me shows about gaming and science fiction and all the things that we enjoy. Right? There's already all this stuff out there um, to listen to about the things that we are enthusiastic about. And initially, I couldn't see a niche for us. But one day, I went to um, iTunes and I put in. I was. I'd been watching a little prisoner, and I was thinking, you know, I'd like to listen to somebody. I like to listen to a good conversation about this show, and I type in the prisoner, and turns out there wasn't one. Wow, there wasn't. A sh- there was not a show concerning the prisoner when we started doing this, and I, I, I and then I kind of got this little you know scratch at the back of my head, and I typed in Mission Impossible, nothing, The Avengers, nothing, and from Uncle Wild Wild West, nothing, and that's when the light bulb went off over my head. So um, in a way. This, uh, our entire enterprise as agents of cool is a response to the fact that nobody was talking about nobody was talking about these things and that may be and that may be um, that the original audience for all these shows are either in their 70s or dead <laughs> so we may I mean the people that were watching TV back in the 60s a lot of them may not be around now to uh, listen to a podcast about those shows well, um, uh, for those of, well, those I mean, of you we did get a nice email from somebody from a prisoner fan group that did listen to our first episode about this. So we hold may... on, let me hold on, fella. Let me look, let me look him up. Let me look that guy up. Who yeah, be- before we start to cry, oh, there's basically yeah, there's nobody else doing prisoner stuff out there in the whole wide world of the internet, and probably because they're all basically you know they're you know they're they're seventies and going creek 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 and like I, I basically I don't want I don't want a bouncing rover from you know the the international prisoner fan club to be bouncing on my doorstep when we get done with this podcast. I, I, we got an email from the Eternal Village, uh, the representative of the Eternal Village, Carl Franz in Seattle, Washington. And Carl, you and all of your compatriots, we apologize that it took so long to get around to another episode. And we're going to keep going. Maybe not next time, but we're going to keep going. All right. Thank you for your kind words about this. We sincerely appreciate that. Um, and part of the reason we do this whole show was that nobody was talking about this stuff. And here we are. Um I haven't actually looked lately. I don't know that anybody is talking about this stuff. We might be it. Um, but anyway, here we are. So um, so let's see. Um, I'm, I'm also going to give a shout out here to our uh, our friend from our undergraduate days in college, uh, Susan, uh, who is also a real serious Prisoner fan. And this is her favorite episode. Um, so I mentioned to her that we were recording on Free For All, and she name checks this as her favorite episode. Uh, because she was uh, fascinated by the idea that those without scruples could place an entire alternate personality on top of you. So Six's happy candidate personality is like a completely different structure that they built on top of his mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it also plays into a theory of hers that I'm not going to drop live on air because I want to see where it goes. So this is her favorite episode, I think, uh, in part for that reason. 
And she also loves the number two reveal at the end. Um, and the way they kind of change out number twos every episode, she thinks if they had let this woman stay number two, they'd have had this, the village would have had this whole thing wrapped up in a couple of episodes. <laughs> because she clearly worked number six over good in this episode. Oh, man. So she, she's convinced that this number two would have been, um, would have had this whole thing wrapped up in just a show or two if they had let her stay. Um, and she has a and she has a theory about why. Yeah, this particular episode kind of plays into a lot of her theories about the sort of meta structure of the show. But I don't want to drop those on air because I don't want to potentially ruin it for anybody. And uh, I think this is also a show that I don't I don't want to tell you how to interpret it. I, I mean, as I mean, I, I I think this is a show that wants you. To interpret it, um, yeah, it wants your interpretation of it, and I don't think so. I mean, obviously, we're going to go on and discuss it here in a second. But for those of you listening who watch this show, I don't want you to think that our interpretation is the interpretation or the only interpretation or an authoritative interpretation. I think Mr. McGoon would be, um, and I, I'm guessing here, would be upset if we tried to suggest that we were in any way there was only one way to look at it, or that you shouldn't see it your way, or whatnot. So, um, so I'm going to launch into this by saying this is a fairly, uh, a fairly bleak view of the political system, um, yep. certainly of England in the 60s, and you could certainly look at it uh, in terms of uh, our system now. And that, I think you uh, can look this, at it systems across history, at least elected, where people get to vote. But. So uh, the village is a system that takes a candidate who is as, who a genuinely fierce and idealistic candidate takes them, uh, molds that candidate to the needs of the system, uh, changing what the candidate's actual policies, ideas, plans are, and then uh, spits them out into a conflict, the conclusion of which is already more or less preordained. Um, so thank you, Mr. McGowan, for <laughs> your, uh, so that, which is like, a, and he wrote it, he directed it, so I'm, I'm, I'm interpreting this as a uh, uh, a fairly uh, bleak commentary on the nature of uh, politics in the West, which I don't know that I personally am that cynical about it. So there's that. Now, I, I respond to the character of Six in this show. Um, over the course of my life, certainly, I don't like being told what to, what to think. I don't like being told what to feel. So I kind of respond to what they call Six's Milton individualism. It's like to, to borrow a matrix, uh, to borrow a metaphor from somewhere else. Uh, I don't like the Matrix telling me what to think and how to feel. Come to think of it, I think McGoon would have liked the Matrix a little bit. So I, I very much respond to what they call Six's melted individualism, uh, which gets him uh, soundly beaten senseless in this particular show. I don't know that I share that. Um, I don't know that I share such a bleak interpretation of politics in general. I mean, I share a bleak interpretation of politics that this kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, of, 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 you know, in terms of how the system, the system itself, acts independently of the the candidates, irrespective of who is in office. There is a momentum, you know, there is a momentum and agendas of the people behind the scenes, running the agencies and such that is not inconsiderable to overcome, even if you are allegedly. "Quote unquote," the one in charge, um, and I, you know, I think that's part and parcel. You know, this is as much a commentary on that as you know what, how the process of getting elected, and the compromises you have to make to get enough votes, um, essentially, you know, quite often forces you to neuter or compromise on the you know your actual, you know, what you actually want to do, and even once you get into power, even if you, whatever little shreds of that survive then have to get past the entrenched bureaucracy to actually make any substantive change. And the system will be fighting you the whole way. And so, really, what, you know, if somebody says, yep, they're going up there to make big changes, okay, sure. Let's see how you that get, works you, out. You charge of the chair control. That's Pretty much, do. yeah. You you can shuffle the people in the chairs in and out all you want. It's the people, in, you know, who, those, who, who the people in those chairs 
you know, who reports to those people in the chairs are the ones making, you know, taking actions and taking decisions that really, you know, actually affect what happens on the ground. And that's a lot harder to change. And that's not even assuming maliciousness or, you know, entrenched, you know, entrenched interests. Um, to, what's the bar of the phrase? It is difficult to get, make a man understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, yeah, this is, the, the, this I is. Feel like the, the episode might have been slightly more effective if Six hadn't been brainwashed for most of it and it still just kind of ended up that even winning made him powerless. Right. Well, I think to the to the certain extent, I mean, but but the, uh, the fact that even the reformer gets molded into just another candidate. I mean, the thing is, a- absent brainwashing, six is too cynical yeah. to buy into the idea that oh, right, the, right. the village that he, would be he, would right. even that would have an election. That this that is be... r- remotely free or fair or not, you know not, anything other than right. yet another uh, you know yeah. yet another bait and switch. So th- that's the thing. I mean, so. There's, yeah, I mean, within the context of, to the, I mean, within the context of the show, six absent large amounts of drugs, and even still, it took, except, you know, more and more drugs, uh, would yeah, not in his, three times. Yeah, would not in his right mind believe that anything coming out of number two's mouth, even if number two read him the clock time on the clock on the wall. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that that's as much, you know, now taking it as, you know, a metaphor, you know, an analogy for politics, though, it's like, you know, okay, yep, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm a cynical, you know, I'm a cynical upstart who wants to make changes to the system, and I know that, you know, that that's going to try to break me, but by golly, I'm, I'm, I'm the one that can get all through this, and eventually start, you know, believing your own press releases, and, you know, I, I would... I'm not noticing that you sound just like the other guy. Right, I mean, I would give specific examples, but there's, I think, 100... There's about 200 and what 535 up in DC, just as an example. And listeners can look to these specific numbers in their local state house for uh, more local examples. Stacy, yes. How do you feel about it? Um, I found it really psychedelic, even compared to normal prisoner fare. Uh, there just seemed to be too much going on with the brainwashing and all. So. I wasn't a huge fan when I first watched it. I've I've read some other people's interpretations since, and I can kind of see this the general deep cynicism about the democratic system and how everything is just sort of puppeted from beginning to end. Yeah. All right. It is definitely not an episode where, you know, Six somehow manages to hold out no matter what they try to do. This is not not one where he wins even a, a uh Spiritual victory, not even a parent victory. He loses. Yeah, and that's. Uh, I, I see. Yeah, why this would you know this was probably meant to be. Yeah, you know, this was meant to be the second episode because you've got the first one, and okay, the audience is really waiting for okay, you know, number six to make his brilliant counter move or whatnot. And nope, nope. Here we are pounding. You know, nope, we are going to pound him, hammer and tongs. And the only reason he's still alive is because we are letting him. They, we do not damage the tissue. Yeah, we it's damage the tissue. Yeah, he, he, you know, uh, he, his continued existence is only because they feel it will ultimately further their ends. Right. So the, yeah, yeah, this is. I mean, this is in some ways. I mean, the, the writer is telling you the writer, which in this case is Patrick McGowan, telling you, no, this is the long haul, boys and girls. Um, of course, you, you can also look oh, at this. Right. You're not, not going to win in the second episode. Yeah. Just your rebelliousness. Yeah, and the other, I mean, the other piece is, like, the prisoner kind of whips off between, like, you know, in some cases, it's allegory and, you know, passion play as much as, okay, a, a television, you know, a, a plot of the beginning, middle, and end. I mean, there's, you know, in some cases, sometimes you're watching a, a show about spies, kind of, sort of, and sometimes you're watching experimental theater, and right. it will turn on you like a rattlesnake in that <laughs> regard. Yeah. Now, uh, keep in mind that we're doing the show here where we'll watch this. Then we'll turn around next week and we'll watch Wild Wild West, which could be freaking anything, right? Um, So even within the parameters of the shows that we watch, there's room for a lot of different kinds of storytelling, a lot of different kinds of tone, a lot of different kinds of mood, right? Um, 
The Prisoner has always been described as a cult show. Mm -hmm. um, this is not always going to be an easy show to like. Though I certainly do like the show. I mean, even the bleak episodes. I don't normally go for bleak in what I spend my entertainment time on. But, um, I mean, even in this case, I still really like this episode. Uh, do we like this episode? I like this episode. It's probably if I had to sit somebody down and say, here, watch The Prisoner, it's not one I would pick as, like, the, the lead-in or, like, the exemplar. I mean, to be fair, I also wouldn't do that with, with uh, Blow Up either. But... Yeah, like is maybe I, I wouldn't say yep. This is, uh, like is maybe a strong word. I, I can kind of appreciate it in the context of the other episodes and the overall the overall run. It probably you know I think there's other episodes I like a lot more. So is it uh, is it the bleakness that is uh, problematic for you, or is it the uh, yeah? I mean, I think it, it's so. Is it the bleakness, or is it the intensely allegorical nature of it? Oh, I, I love the allegorical nature of it. I, I love the allegorical <laughs> nature of it. It's. I guess that's. So I mean, in terms of like, like as in, I appreciate. So I can appreciate the allegorical nature of it. I, I I like that part of it to the extent. I guess in terms of like as in, in episode I would go to as a rewatch probably not. Um, no, as in, here. yeah. As I'm, am I glad I yeah, am I glad I watch it again? Of course. Uh, so yeah, so I guess it's kind of that's one of those, and I, I'm one of our listeners who knows who they are. Uh, you know, maybe. I mean, generally, what I'm going to say, my, my personal, okay, I'm going to just, I would like to be entertained. I've had a long day. I would like to watch the episode where the plucky, wily spy, you know, outfoxes his opponents, and, you know, when you think things are bleakest, actually pulls, you know, pulls it out of the bag. Prisoner's not that show, but I still like the prisoner, you know. So, I guess, in terms of what, you know, stuff I would consume because I find it edifying, or it's kind of makes you go, think? Yes, I definitely fall in that category. Something I would want to watch after, you know, I don't know... Would I want to watch this sometime around, I don't know, uh, December 6th of last year? Probably not. No. No, 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 no. Yeah. So that's... Is that... I don't know if that really answers the question, but it's kind of like... I mean, what what you like and what you want to do and can appreciate may depend on what it is you're wanting to get out of that particular media. Sometimes you want just, I would like to forget about the world and, you know, go, you know, and follow the adventures of my good buddies, Han and Chewbacca, right? Or, you know, Tony Stark, right? And other times, okay, I would, you know, you want something that, you want something that challenges and makes you think somewhat, you know. Or Rollin and Cinnamon. Yeah. Gem and Artie. Yeah. Or, or Napoleon and Ilya. Yeah. So, I mean, this, and this is, you know, uh, the large show we're watching is fundamentally escapist, you know, media. I mean, basically, you know, I mean, let, let, let's begin with the large fantasy that, you know, large intelligence agencies know what they are doing and can, with precision, influence world affairs in a positive fashion. Let us, <laughs> let's, yeah, let's just get that, let's get the chuckles out of our system right now for that one, okay? So that is possibly uh, the biggest single, gis, gi, you know, gino, most ginormous fantasy of a lot of this stuff, uh, at least. And I'm not, and again, I don't. I am not crapping over it. It's fun and good to watch because, you know, you know, I'm not at all by me saying, oh, well, it's just, you know, this is just entertainment for children. You can still sell some, you know, some great stories in there and there's, but, you know, it, it is fundamentally kind of an escapist genre on several levels. Um, but, you know, so this one is a different kind of escape and is more, you know, I think trying to get people to kind of, I mean, it, it, it has definite ideas about how the world, the way the world works and they are, they do not conveniently fall into a convenient categorization system. Um, unlike, Which is maybe why this is considered a cult show. Yeah. Maybe it's not for well, no, I think that's, I think that's why it's considered a classic. I think it's considered a well, cult show. Is, yeah. It's considered a cult show because it doesn't fit in. Yeah. 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 That's fair. It's good as culture because it doesn't fit into those weird little boxes. So we don't know what box to put it in. So we'll call it a cult show. If you try to look at what is this trying to say, sometimes it says some things that are kind of uncomfortable and don't fit people's preconceptions about, you know, a nice little two dimensional, you know, nice little one dimensional axis of good versus evil. Insert, you know, you know, insert your particular letters at either end of the, that, that axis kids. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it does it in a way where, you know, unlike something like, I don't know, say like House of Cards or other stuff where you're trying to, they're trying to draw parallels to more recent events, that I think reduces the shelf life of something, you know, whereas this yeah. is just, I mean, now, to be fair, we're watching it some... 55 years later? Jesus Christ, I wasn't going to do the math, but yeah. So we're watching it a little over a half century. Um, 
um, which I think does speak to which does speak to the quality of the work involved. Oh, absolutely. So, but the other TV shows from fifty five years ago are anybody. I mean, it's basically the spy shows we watched in Star Trek, and how Mm -hmm. much Doctor Who from the sixties does anybody really go through the fine tooth comb like this? Doctor Who, and um, yeah. So I, I do think it speaks well of, every, and they're all and they're all gone now. Patrick died ages ago, and Mark Steen died ages ago, and all the actors and all the crew and all the writers—they're all gone now. Yeah, the number two um, from this episode uh, died two years after filming. He was about—I yeah. mean, he was—he was sixty-seven at the time of filming. So um, it uh, speaks very, very well of the people involved that they've done work of such merit and such complexity that we can still talk about it all these years later. Uh, and it, I think it speaks to your point that uh, shows that speak too closely to their times don't always survive the test of time. No, I'm not entirely up on like British politics in the '60s. Um, so I mean, it's po- yeah, it's po- I mean it's possible there's some bits and pieces in here that were a lot more relevant and you know relevant to the the day to day political scene, uh, and we just don't remember. Um, well, you've gotten the idea that you know. Elections and the press and so forth maybe don't matter as much as we would, or don't stand for individuality, right. freedom, and democracy as much as we would like. To yeah, so I don't know if particular speeches or particular campaign slogans were kind of you know something you know were taken or you know borrowed or meant to evoke some of that time or maybe of you know of of his youth or whatnot. I don't know, but the well, the interesting little jabs back and forth where they're arguing about whether. You know, working so much that you don't have leisure time makes you the better candidate, or standing for leisure time because every man deserves that makes you the better candidate. I feel like that's an argument somebody probably actually had. Yeah, that's Maybe. that's true. And of course, the other thing we're also looking at lens through what I mean. Okay, we can think of like stock American political for you know, Amer- right. you know, but these are British ones. So I mean, it's possible those are pretty much that's was that the mom and apple pie for this. I I, I don't know. I always assumed it was you know shepherd's pie and. The Queen, but what do I, <laughs> yeah, okay. Please don't, please do not send me hate mail, British listeners. Please, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. We all know it's football and the Queen. Uh, anyway, I guess we would all say that the production definitely holds up. Some of the sort of quote unquote psychedelic, surreal elements, eh, maybe a little dated. I don't know. Again, um, that, that's where you kind of get into that goes from drama to experimental theater. And you 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 miss that transition because and you know you're again the the expression on our face when num, when number is the same expression on Patrick McGowan's face when he walks in and there's four guys in sunglasses with uh, watching a rover. Um, so oh, one other little thing. Speaking in that vein, are they the rover monitors? Are they, is it sick and they're making it better? What's going I, on? Yeah, I I that's we this is it explained never. Um, I, I sort of interpreted it as four people with telekinetic and telepathic abilities manifesting a security system for the village. I, but, then I'm gonna, but then I'm the guy that's going to look at it in terms of, you know, whatever big psycho, whatever big sort of science fictional definition, you know? Oh, no. What, speaking of weird things, you will see blink and you miss it at things in the episode. Um, and this was in the parade for one brief moment. I thought, what the flaming heck? Somebody's put those little pixelated sunglasses people like to you know Photoshop into to onto to to gifs or whatnot on there, and I'm like, what the hell is that? That's not that can't be there. I'm like about to like, wait, do we have evidence of time travel? No, of course we do not. Um, it's some sort of weird goggle with like just a black and white checker pattern on it that a couple of people in the parade are wearing for again no particular reason we are told, but it right. lo- yeah if you if you watch it and you think you see that wind it back that that's what you're looking at but um, that just made me go start to question my grip on reality at 10 o'clock last night when we were watching this. Uh, yeah, I think we know where the uh, the sixth doctor got his outfit from after that parade as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's there are some a lot of good music came out of the 60s. But some weird clothes and, I, and style trends in general. In, yeah, this one, I the capes and the hats, I still the, I mean, obviously they were trying to look as odd as possible. They succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. <laughs> now, admittedly, they had to. This is, I think, where they trying to look odd even by the standards of the time. Which, in case that might explain why they felt they had needed to absolutely spike the football there. 
I like to think that the eccentricities of costume design maybe lend it a certain timeless air. Like they're not hewing to what would have been then contemporary fashion. They're going kind of out there. Then again, you know, your mileage may vary. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, nothing else. I mean, again, at this point, I mean, coming to it now, I mean, because you you can't really absent, you know, absent a time machine and you can't really come to it when it was first aired. I mean, it looks more and more bizarrely alien, you know, the further from when it was, it, it aired when you watch it, which I think just adds to the effect. All right, then. Now, um, like we said before, uh, this show is open to individual interpretation. And if any of you out there would like to email us with any of your particular thoughts or of your particular thoughts or interpretations of this or, frankly, anything else we've ever recorded about, uh, my email for the show is number six, all lowercase, all letters, at agentsof.cool. Mine is Mrs. Peel, M-R-S-P-E-E-L, all lowercase, no period, at agentsof.cool. Mine is Ray at agentsof.cool. If you're having trouble figuring out what to put in that email, kids, just pretend we didn't put that disclaimer in about, you know, your mileage may vary, and pretend we said this is the definitive interpretation of the episode. See what comes out. Sure, Sure, that works for us, too. So, um, as always... We'll have a flame war in our comments. Go ahead, Stacey, say that again. We will totally have a flame war in our comments. Oh, totally. Um, So, thank you all very much for listening. Uh, Thank you for coming along with us on this journey, and uh, I assure you, we are far from done. Um, Out there in our blasted, frozen, pandemic, dystopian hellscape, uh, all of our listeners, uh, please stay safe, and we'll be back with you soon. Soon.